Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Hi there, you're listening to another episode of Words and Nerds, the podcast dedicated to in-depth conversations with authors about the social and political influences on their writing and how literature has the power to change the world. As avid listeners are no doubt aware, this is not your regular host, Danny V. I'm young adult author Will Kostakis. You may know me from previous episodes or from my novels, The First Third, The Sidekicks, and The Monuments Duology. Today, we welcome Sophie Gonzalez to the pod. She writes young adult queer contemporary fiction overflowing with wit and heart. She is the author of The Law of Inertia, Only Mostly Devastated, and the recently released Perfect on Paper, which follows Darcy Phillips as she provides an anonymous, questionably legal relationship advice service at her high school. When she isn't writing, Sophie can be found ice skating, performing in musical theatre, and practicing the piano. She currently lives in Melbourne, Australia, where she works as a psychologist. Today, we'll talk about queer rep being very online authors and writing for an international audience. Sophie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we like to begin by asking our guest to give the elevator pitch for their latest novel. So you've got 20 seconds in a lift with somebody. How would you describe Perfect on Paper? Perfect on Paper is a YA rom-com that follows a bisexual girl called Darcy who runs an anonymous dating advice service through an abandoned locker at her school. And when a hot senior guy discovers her identity, he blackmails her to becoming his personal dating coach to help him win his ex-girlfriend back. Oh, I love How it. I do. Yeah, no, you did, you did pretty well. You got in there. I think, I reckon you got in under those 20 seconds. So that was that was a pretty good attempt. Have you... 
polish that or is that just sort of off the cuff? <laughs> I I think that that has developed over a few months of interviews now. I'm like, nailed it. But, oh, you know, the first time you ever asked that, it's like a one minute long pitch. It, and it is that weird thing about being an author that you are expected to tackle all these different forms. We think of, say, the novel as a form and that's it. But as a writer, you also have to come up with the short form pitch, the really long pitch, like, and it is, there is an art form to it. And I often find that I don't know how to pitch my books until mm. about a year of pitching them terribly. So you are already <laughs> well ahead of me. Yeah. Unfortunate pandemic reasons, our paths haven't crossed since the local release of Only Mostly Devastated, and every interaction we've had has been online. You are one of the authors who I would describe as quote-unquote very online. That's often employed as a negative descriptor, but as another very online author myself, I disagree with that. What would you say is the big benefit of putting so much of yourself online? I think for me, the biggest benefit is that I'm able to meet other authors. Um, being online, especially considering I am published in the US, there is no other way for me to meet a lot of the other authors at my publishing house, the other authors with my agent. Um, authors who are writing the same types of books as me, um, we, we tend to meet each other online. When you meet other authors online, you form a support network. You, uh, you can read their books in the draft stage and give them feedback and have that uh, extended back to you. Um, you learn so much more about publishing and the kind of conversations that are happening. I, I think there's just so much value in that. Are there any negatives? uh sleep is a big one <laughs> um yeah I I think I mentioned to you before we started chatting that I'm nocturnal um because the U.S. is obviously on such a different time zone to us I tend to go to bed at about 4 or 5 a.m. just because I have so many publishing meetings and etc. happening in the middle of the night. Um, I don't necessarily do it on purpose, but once you have a few nights in a row of needing to be up at 3 and 4 a.m. to do something publishing related, it just naturally becomes your sleep cycle. Yeah, I have <laughs> I have noticed certain sort of, like if I wake up in the middle of the night and I check my Twitter, like which is the worst thing to do, I'll see sort of posts <laughs> from you at 3 a.m. and I'm like what's she doing? <laughs> <laughs> she is awake. This is her afternoon. But see, here I was thinking you were this, this super cool sort of chick, just doing whatever, throwing caution to the wind. No, you're working. So it's <laughs> <laughs> I'm super not cool. I'm just a workaholic. <laughs> um, I wanted to sort of touch on something. I was reading your Goodreads after sort of I am an incredibly cursed author where once I finish reading a book, I then go on the Goodreads, um, which is obviously not what anybody should be doing, um, especially those with sort of thin skins or who are sort of afraid of criticism. But I found something really poignant that you wrote on Goodreads about Perfect on Paper that I just wanted to read out for our listeners and then perhaps invite you to discuss it more if you're comfortable here goes. I won't try to put on your voice, but. <laughs> Thank you. 
I've been writing bisexual characters for many years and I'd always written them dating someone who shared their gender. Then in Only Mostly Devastated, I wrote a bi character whose story culminated in a romance with someone of a different gender. And I suddenly received pushback. I started hearing that I'd done something wrong and I won't list the specific things said here because they're just hurtful. But the reasons given boiled down to this. A bi person who is in a relationship with a different gender is not correct queer rep, rep being short for representation. At first, as is normal when we hear we've done something wrong, I felt awful and doubted myself. But when I thought on it further, I didn't feel guilty anymore. Honestly, I felt angry because biphobia is still so ingrained in the community that people not only feel it's acceptable to call a bi person less or not queer if they choose to date someone over another at a point in time, but that it was so ingrained within me that I hesitated, that I believed for a moment I might have done something wrong. So because I'm me, I did it again, but bigger. And that's the end of the quote. And, you know, here we see being very online as an author, shaping the way you see your own work, the way you see yourself and the way you write. Do you find that being very online has a positive effect on your work or a negative one? I think that... I have to answer both. Um, I think in some ways, being able to see the discussions, particularly discussions about representation and what is harmful representation and what isn't, um, particularly when it comes to marginalisations that I don't share, it can be really, really, really beneficial to my work because it, it's... Um, it's a resource that you, you can't necessarily sit down and Google, um, you know, have I written something harmful? Um, so being able to see those conversations, I think, has improved my ability to, I hope, <laughs> uh, write marginalisations that I don't share in a way that is respectful and causes the least harm possible. Um, but yeah, on the flip side, sometimes that can make you really overthink what you're doing or one example I can think of is that there was one person who said you know I'm not going to go into what they said but um they they had a very strong opinion on what should and shouldn't be written um and because I respected this person because this post had a lot of likes um I guess I, I took it as gospel um, and then it wasn't until about a year later when I realised that this wasn't necessarily a view that was shared by most people from that marginalised community. Um, and I'd been just operating under this, well, I, I need to do it in a certain way because this one person said that I need to write this in a certain way, whereas that wasn't necessarily the case. So I think that sometimes when we see things online being said, um, it, it can be hard to picture it in the greater context of okay well this is one person's opinion that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an opinion that everyone shares it can seem bigger and more black and white than it is in real life and on top of that 
people's positions can change over time. You might see a post that goes viral, but you know, by the time you have seen it, that author's opinion may have shifted on it. I want to know, how do you work through that doubt? Is it just you wait for everyone else to go to sleep and then you start writing? <laughs> or... <laughs> What I personally do is I try not to work alone. You know, I, if I'm ever doubting something that I've written, I get as much feedback as I can, whether that's from my agent and editing team, or I would prefer myself to go to all of my author friends and paste the page that I'm working on and say, you know, like absolutely no holds barred, don't you know don't be mean but you know be as honest as you can like is this okay um this is my concern with it do you think that that's founded and I I don't really trust myself because I'm just one person if I've written something that's a little bit you know I'm a little bit uncertain about I want as many eyes on it as possible um which is one reason why I always make sure to use authenticity readers in my writing. Um, I always get uh, several readers who, an authenticity reader for anyone who doesn't really know what that is, is um, someone from uh, who has a marginalization that you're writing about. Um, you will pay them to read through your story and give their feedback on the representation that you've written uh, according to their own feelings and experiences. Um, it's a really good way for someone from the community that you're writing about who might be really in tune with some conversations that are happening or, you know, understand it in a different way to you because they have that life experience um, that you don't have. So certainly that's been a really big tool to help me make sure that my interpretation of what's going on uh is, you know, as accurate as it can be. And when I know that I have that feedback, it's easier for me to write it in the first place because, you know, I can kind of tell myself it's okay. You know, if if you are uncertain, just write what you think and we can check it later. And have you ever considered shying away from queer rep because of the pressure to get things quote unquote right? I have said to people before that I'm not sure if I would have <clears throat> written queer stories from the start. Uh, I, I don't think now I would change um, because, you know, I'll, this is something that, well, not only do, do I love writing it, um, but it is something that my publishers have come to expect, that my readers have come to expect that I will be writing. But you're not wrong. There is just a lot of pressure and harmful conversations happening and uh, just it, it would I imagine it would be very very different experience writing about cishet characters versus writing about queer characters and you know yeah some of that is quite hard to navigate and sometimes you do go like oh it would have been so much easier, but, you know, it would have also been a very different experience and I love what I do. So I can't say that I regret it. Yep. And we're glad you don't regret it because, <laughs> you know, reading your work, it is amongst those sort of examples of queer rep that, you know, make my heart sing. So we're really glad, oh. 
that you've you've chosen to write that and you can't go back in time and change it now. So deal. <laughs> you've revealed the germ of the idea here, or at least um, what you intended to represent. But so often when we represent in fiction, that's where the conversation about idea generation ends. Like if I'm sort of on the publicity circuit, people are like, okay, Will, here's your new book. Tell us about your personal pain for an hour or tell us about what you intended to do in terms of representation. And then everyone claps and my time is over. And then usually uh, a straight uh, author gets to stand up and go, hey, this is my exciting story and this is what it's about. And, you know, very often that when we centre representation in discussions about stories, we forget about the story part of stories. So yeah. with that in mind, I'm going to draw a line in the sand under representation and I am fascinated by the plot of Perfect on Paper because it not only feels familiar and like an idea I wish I wrote or like something that was sort of percolating in the back of my mind, but it also feels radically different to anything I would be able to think up or have seen before. Where did the idea of Locker 89 and this sort of teenage Dolly relationship doctor come from? I think uh, most of it came from the fact that a, when I was a teenager, I used to love self-help, um, especially when it came to relationships. I loved Dolly Doctor, but I also, uh, I owned so many books, um, you know, <laughs> men are from Mars, women are from Venus type books uh, about, you know, you need to act in a certain way and then all of your problems will be solved. <laughs> I used to love that. Um, and I've still been very interested in that, interested in that as I've, gotten older um but I'm a psychologist and um part of my psychological studies involved having a greater understanding of things like um attachment styles and um what what causes people to act in the way that they do um more recently a couple of years ago I started learning a lot more about adult attachment styles and that for me was a huge huge moment because uh I had always acted in ways that I could never explain or understand um I I guess there were some times in relationships where I would have just this emotion come out of nowhere you know a, a like a panicked feeling of oh my gosh you know this person who is my devoted partner must suddenly hate me and want to leave me for example and you know that would always send me into this absolute panic and I mean panic panic um like hyperventilating panic and I never really understood where that came from until I started reading about attachments and went wow I actually have an anxious attachment style which essentially means I am primed to believe that I'm going to get abandoned and I everything that I do is in response to that is me trying to not be abandoned <laughs> um so yeah for me that was like this huge moment that made me review everything about myself and how I act in relationships and I think helped me form much more healthy relationships um, because I could see these irrational reactions coming before they came. Um, so I think always when I'm writing books I 
I want to pass on lessons that I've learned myself because there are always things that make me think, wow, you know, if I'd had this information 10 years earlier, that might have really changed how I approached so many situations in my life. Um, so I think the idea of Locker 89, to answer your question in a long-winded way, um, came from my fascination with relationship theories and wishing that I had the this knowledge when I was younger, you know, who would give this kind of knowledge to people in a high school well you know maybe it's this girl who was a little bit like me but you know take it that much further who really understands all of this and does all of this research but at a younger age and uses that to help other people rather than just to steer her own love life. If your younger self put in a letter to Locker 89 what advice would you give your younger self about anything, romance or otherwise? Well, I guess I've probably given away some of the answer by talking about the fact that I have an anxious <laughs> attachment style. So, yeah, a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I I would say, you know, look into this. Um, you don't need to feel afraid. Um, you, you know, this this strong reaction that you're having it's just a fear that you're going to be left alone um you don't need to react like that um this is why you feel like that here are some healthier ways <laughs> to respond to you know for example a breakup or what you perceive as an, an imminent threat of a breakup um because a lot of the time when you think that something's about to go wrong and you panic and you try and stop it from happening you actually cause the thing yeah. happened. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a cycle that I would have loved to break nice and early. It's your revenge of the Sith scenario, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> um, did the novel evolve over time or did it sort of arrive to you fully formed? What What is your process when writing? Yeah, um, mine tend to arrive fully formed. Um, I'm one of those really type A people the book just kind of appears with the beginning, middle and end all mapped out. And as soon as I get that idea, I need to sit down and write the whole synopsis um, detailed uh, from start to end. So I'll write out the whole plot, which takes a couple of hours, usually like four pages long kind of thing. And then um, I go through and separate it into chapters and how long each chapter is going to be like by dividing the total word count by the chapters because I'm like that and then um, I sit down and write it so I think the only thing that I kind of didn't necessarily have planned was the content of the letters that people write into Darcy um, because they're included along with her responses in the book um, those I all did on one day um, I just sat down and wrote dozens of letters to Darcy and wrote her responses and then picked the ones that I liked the best and inserted them where I felt they belonged in the book um I love writing out of order that is the only other thing like I will the first things that get written are things like the kissing scene and the big argument scene before I've even like introduced characters yet <laughs> the way you've described your writing process being that sort of type a person who's planned everything out and then also writing out of order I know that On the Horizon is a collaboration with another mm. YA author. 
how on earth have you married your personality and writing style with collaboration? Ask poor Kale. (laughs) 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 Yeah, Uh, yeah. it was hard. (laughs) So essentially uh, Kale and I started for the book, If This Gets Out, um, we started with a detailed synopsis. Um, I was constantly checking in with Kale saying, am I steering this too much? Like, have I taken over too much? And Kale, um, people who don't know him, is like a very sweet personality. He's very, very go with the flow. So he would always be like, no, 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 this is great. This is great. But I think in my gut, I was always like, I feel like I've steamrolled him a little bit. Um, And yeah, uh, the thing about collabing with someone is that they, you know, they'll write the next chapter and then they'll bring it back to you. And even though you've kind of decided together what the chapter is going to be like and about, um, I think you always have a very specific picture in your head. I don't know about you, Will, but for me, when I, when I think of a scene, I think of a very specific scene, but you know, the other person doesn't share your mind when they hear argument, for example, they're thinking something very different to you. So yeah, it was a huge adjustment experience, I think, to like uh, receive this thing and say, okay, that's not actually what I personally had pictured, which means that what I was planning for my chapter probably doesn't fit anymore. So it's this, for both of us, probably there was this whole reacting and updating and adjusting and saying okay all right I see you went in that direction so that means that I'm probably going to have to go in this direction now so very very different experience um I think it's just a different skill um probably more so than I anticipated when we started but I think that in a lot of ways that created a kind of story that I would have never been able to make alone I mean of course you know it's two people creating a story it's something totally different and for the listeners who don't know the Kale of which we speak, it is mm. Kale Dietrich who has written 2017's The Love Interest and 2020's The Friend Scheme. Look, you have found tremendous success internationally with authors like Becky Albertalli of Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda lining up to praise your work. Australian authors, particularly in YA, are currently wrestling with a shrinking local market and Australian teens' appetite for books not set in Australia. Both Only Mostly Devastated and Now Perfect on Paper are set in the United States. What drew you to setting your work outside of your home country? Hmm. I think for me it was sort of steered by my initial decision to seek publication in the United States. So for me, fairly early on, I decided that I would like an American agent and an American publisher um, who would then be able to publish me in Australia. Um, Just because from what I could see, um, it seemed to me like it was probably a little bit easier for Australians to get their hands on a book published in America than the reverse. So a book published in Australia 
there are books that are published in Australia that make their way over to America and some of them do really fantastically over there. Um, But just in terms of making it easier for myself (laughs) to get my books over to America, I thought, well, going to the source will probably be easier. Um, And what I observed um, with reading and with watching other people go through the publishing journey was that if I wanted to get my books published in the United States, my best chance of having that happen would be to write a book set in America um, because American readers particularly, I think, enjoy reading books that feel familiar to them. Um, Whereas I think Australian people are a little bit more used to consuming media from a whole bunch of different countries. Um, I don't think that that necessarily happens quite as often um, when you're someone growing up in America um, compared to how often it happens here. So, yeah, it kind of went backwards like that for me. It was never a, oh, well, I don't want to write about Australia. I would love to write about Australia. Um, I just wanted to make sure that I could uh, maximize my chances of breaking into a really crowded market and I didn't want to make it any more difficult for myself but you know in the future I would love to write a book set in Australia um, I think in perfect on paper there is an Australian love interest <laughs> and that was my way of getting yeah. <laughs> getting some Australian things in desperately <laughs> that was my question like I've my next yeah. question I I find it especially when I'm reading a story set in America by an Australian, there is always, and I love it when they appear, the Australian new kid. And (laughs) you can see them as like sort of comfort food. They appear very early because it's just, and you can just tell either, you know, the author has written them in and will either get rid of them in a later draft and it's just sort of helping write that, that character that you know inside and out that had a very similar experience to you. Um, yeah. So my question was going to be, was that your way of incorporating an Aussie perspective? And I think you're going to say yes. <laughs> yes, I was. I, that was propaganda of anything. I'm like, let's tell everyone all of our things. What songs do I want them to know about? What phrases do I want them to know about? Like just injecting like everything that I can into this book as naturally as I can. Um, if, I, if I can make some American readers look up an Australian music Spotify list, I will be so vindicated. Excellent. And What do you think was the most challenging thing about writing Perfect on Paper? The most challenging thing was the fact that I wrote from a female perspective, which is not something that I've ever done before. Mm. Um, I've been writing since I was about five and I've never written a whole story that only followed a girl. Um, I've written dual POVs in the past, um, but never an entire story without ever seeing through the eyes of a guy. I don't have a great answer for why that is. It's just how it was from the start with me. Um, so, you know, in a lot of weird ways that are hard to articulate, it there was this brand new skill for me in learning how to write a girl, <laughs> which I know I know how it sounds. It's, it doesn't make sense, but it, it just is what it is. Um, so that was a, a learning curve for me. You are a few novels deep now. What do you think people can come to expect 
from a Sophie Gonzalez book. We've already spoken about sort of queer representation, but is there anything else that you think makes your novels stand apart? Definitely. Um, so I think my particular brand of humour always comes through, even in books like If This Gets Out, which is the collaboration novel, that's not a rom-com by any means, but there is still, I think, like my sarcastic, deadpan, very Aussie humour <laughs> comes through. Um, and I love argument scenes. I can't imagine writing a whole book without two people going at it. Um, I love getting into the heads of two different people who both think that they're in the right and just watching them like bounce off each other. I love that. Um, and honestly, I can't see myself writing a book without a genuinely flawed main character. Um, I don't gravitate towards books with external villains so much. Um, I, I don't know, they're great to read, but for me, I'm always more interested in following a character who means well but has done some maybe stupid things some selfish things um things that they would later regret and probably wouldn't want to do again but they did the thing and now they have to fix the thing <laughs> um and you know I think that that can be a little bit difficult because I know that people really like for main characters to be as likable as possible um but I just can't help it I think for me, yeah, one thing that you'll always see from me is characters who do the wrong thing to an extent and later realise, oh, actually, I kind of wasn't really awesome just now. And now before we say goodbye, we know that you have the collaboration with Kale on the horizon, but I want to know, is there anything else that we should expect from you what's next is there anything you can tell us about or do you have to keep mum no no I've so I've sold two more books um after if this gets out so I've got my 2022 release and my 2023 release um, both of them are sapphic rom-coms so they're female female um the first one follows a girl whose cheating ex-boyfriend becomes famous because his sibling starts dating a royal so think like Pippa Middleton style um, and he ends up being the star of a reality tv show in which he redates all of his exes so the main character Maya um, has to team up with the girl that he cheated on her with to and the two of them want to help each other get to the finale so that they can take him down on live television. Um, you can see how much more rough the pitches are when, <laughs> when you're doing it the first time. This is an example of this. Oh, this is good. And this, <laughs> this allows me the chance to sort of circle back to where we started and ask, what do you think is the difference between sort of a rough elevator pitch and the polished pitch? Is there something that sort of stands out that makes a pitch work? Yeah, so I think the polished pitch, by that point, you know what the crux of the story is. You know what the selling point is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Perfect on Paper is about a lot more than what I say. You know, it's also like there's a hate to love romance in there. There's a trip to Disneyland. There's themes of 
uh, by a character examining her internalized biphobia and external biphobia she receives you know all those things like when you're first pitching a book you're like you want to mention all of that you want you want people to know okay but there's all this other cool stuff too <laughs> um so yeah I think when you get when you've done enough times you start realizing what what is the actual hook here um like you know the hunger games you could pitch that as you know a series that explores you know government oppression and the haves and the have-nots and you know a rebellion and how uh pushback movements happen and the corruption of power well no people want to want to know what the book is about and it is about kids being shoved in an arena to kill each other and only one can win (laughs) you know that's what it's like that that's the hook you want a hook and like all of those other themes and stuff they make a book richer but like they're the seasoning you know you want to put something on the menu you want to say like this is a chicken burger with spicy sauce and all of the things that you put on the chicken burger and the way that you make the sauce that's going to make your chicken burger really really good but you're not going to go into that on a menu because people don't want to read that they just want to know the crux of what they're getting and if they enjoy it well that's all the better yeah I find it's often figuring out what that one or two sentence pitch is that makes an audience lean in all that yeah. other, once they've leaned in, they will gobble it up. But it's just getting them to lean in and finding that that thing that makes them move and sort of trust you a bit more and sort of give themselves over to you as a reader or a prospective reader. And now I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us on Words and Nerds, Sophie. It has been an absolute pleasure hearing you talking about what makes a good pitch writing for Australian and American teens and aspiring to write quality queer rap. If this podcast has piqued your interest in Sophie's work, Only Mostly Devastated and Perfect on Paper are available now from all bookstores and your local library. Stay safe.